Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and chavruta, Yerdena Azband. Our daf of the day, Masach Psachim, daf Pei Hey, page 85. I'm starting in the middle of Ahmed Aleph, and we have what is fundamentally a new topic, a new discussion. It's still talking about Tumah, it's still talking about the Korban Pesach, of course, but here we're talking about what happens if that same meat is taken out of the permitted boundaries of where it is, which is, I would say, an added wrinkle to the all of the discussion of what the requirements are when it comes to the Korban Pesach, and you talk about um, the specifics of the animal and the, I'm going to say the kashrut of the animal, but I also mean, you know, the unblemished nature of the animal in terms of it being a Korban, and where it can be shechted, and who can shecht it, and who participates in the eating of it, and and what happens to it afterwards in terms of what's notar, and when is it notar, and so on, right? Meaning this, the parameters, there are so many factors that go into making the Korban Pesach, the Korban Pesach in the most acceptable, you know, in, it's not just the most acceptable way, the, the way that is required, uh, the question of what happens when something leaves the per- permitted boundaries, you know, we end up with a question of, is it then rendered tame or not? What's going to happen here? So Ibayelahu, this question was raised before Chazal, right? This, this is, it's exactly this question, say when if the same consecrated meat, sacrificial meat, had left you know, had gone out from where it was handled initially, and now it's going to go to its out of the permitted boundaries. Did they decree that it would, in fact, be then turned into Tuma? Now, this is rabbinic Tuma, like a decree of Tuma, as opposed to, uh, I don't know, an inherent Doraita Tuma. Um, so the question is, does that, did they do that or did they not? And of course, this is again, Chazal figuring out, or the question is posed to Chazal, and they are going to answer based on what had happened generations before. Mi amrinan notar de gezer tuma de ati le yatsule be, aval yotse afuki biadaim lo mafkile biadaim lo gazru be rabanan tuma. So what happens? We say that the question is, do we say that the same way that notar is something that, you know, is a case of Tuma. Why, why Notar? The concern is that what if the Kohanim themselves would have been, it says, what if they had come to be lazy about it? And so when you have a decree that your food, that your carbon food is going to go bad, in this case, be rendered impure and therefore impossible to eat, it's going to go bad if you don't eat it on time, you make sure to eat it on time. Uh, you know, that's that's the spur to the, Kohanim eating it in the proper schedule so that this the tuma of the notar is a deterrent uh, to make you know to make sure that they're on those straight and narrow. But you know, but when we're talking about when it's meat that's gone out, right? We're not talking about eating, we're talking about is it moved? If it goes out, then you don't have that same cause for concern because they're not going to take it out of the boundaries, you know, and therefore disqualify it. They're not gonna they're, they're not it does it doesn't it wouldn't disqualify it. Just so then the question is did the Chazal did they not decree that it be considered impure? Or do we say they didn't? It's no different, it's the same thing. Of course it's gonna be disqualified. It's going to be let me say this more carefully. Did they decree that anything that is disqualified? Oh, I don't even remember what I've just. I don't. I'm gonna. Str- I'm gonna say this out straight, not reading the words, so that I can make sure that we say this properly. Okay. If the notar, which is disqualified meat, if we that if that carries a decree of impurity, 
for the sake of making sure that the Kohanim would be on the street now and eat it on time, was that applied also to making sure that they would not take it out, at, which would also disqualify it? Did they need that deterrent to make sure that they would not take it out of the permitted boundaries, or did they not need that deterrent anyway? Or do we just say, no, anything that's disqualified inherently or automatically, I guess, got the got the decree of being ritually impure. And then, of course, what that means is that the moment you have a concern that if you do it wrong, it's going to become impure, it serves as a spur to do to handle it better, to do it right. Um, so this is really the, the case of, on the one hand, it does line up with everything else that we've been talking about. And on the other hand, it's very much specifically about this case of, of bringing it out of the boundaries. So the Gemara, if we jump down quite a bit to the very end of the Amud, we have a whole discussion here of specifically about the meat that goes out of its location, namely Korban Pesach, right? And it says, They didn't establish Tuma in this case. Because the people, once you're in a group, a group offering there for the Korban Pesach, everybody is registered together to be participants in the same korban, then they are Zrizin. They are more zealous. They are more eager. They are more careful. And I would even dare say, you know, this is a certainly a matter of know, peer pressure, right? Some kind of cooperative effort to make sure that everything is done right. And they're going to be more careful. Um, so that's that's the real um, bottom line, that they didn't establish this Duma here. Um, and the question of other Karbanot, we're going we're gonna to say it, it ends up here being a teku. Teku meaning we don't have an answer for what happened to them. What I find most interesting about this whole discussion is actually a metacom comment, which is, a, I guess, a structural comment on the fact that all of this discussion about what happens with the carbon when it leaves the permitted area begins to be the discussion of the next Mishnah, which happens on Amabet. So I feel like this is a puzzle, you know, the structure of this discussion leading into the Mishnah, as opposed to what I might have thought would have happened, which is that first you have the Mishnah, and then following that will be this discussion, or will you know be somewhere included in the discussion that follows up. But that's not how they put the, the Gemara together. So this Mishnah addresses the question of what happens if part of the of the korban uh, would leave the permitted boundary, and how that might happen. And then the question is, of course, where does it, where does it go, right? And this is, now I'm just going to look very quickly at the second half of the mission, and then, Yordan, I'm going to hand it off to you, because I know you have much more to say about this and following on to Amabet. But the question is, is how do you determine what the boundary is of where you where the permitted location is to say that you're then going to be outside of that permitted location? And it, the mission here then has a very interesting discussion of doorways, which I on a different day I might like in and of itself, but now I'm going to turn it over to you since it's your turn. Um, but I just want to make one comment that I think it's the meta comments. Interesting what you said. It doesn't right like that whole Gemara that you just read could be following the, this Mishnah that I'm about to get to. Um, so that structural piece is very interesting. I just want to make sure everyone noticed. I I was very taken by this parallel of with Hilchot Shabbat and carrying, and that the idea of carrying outside of the the boundary has to have the same action as carrying on Shabbat, right? Which is the actual lifting of it, right? The And and then the actual placing it down somewhere that you have to have um, Akira and also Hanacha. It can't, it's not enough that you've just put some of that meat in your pocket 
and walked around and walked outside of the boundary, um, you know, that wouldn't be enough. It would have to be they really placed it somewhere else. So I thought it was interesting that, you know, halakha is going to be consistent here about what does the act of carrying actually mean? And it's not just keeping something in your hand, but it's actually like arriving it or placing it at its next destination. So, uh, you know, it was nice to see sort of that consistency there. Um, but now I'll get to the Mishnah. So the new Mishnah reads as follows. So part of the limb of Pesach, of this Korban Pesach, goes outside of the boundary. So you're going to cut into the flesh until it reaches the bone. The kolech ad shemagia leperik, and then you peel away the flesh until he reaches the joint. The chotech, and you cut out the entire bone. So, in other words, what this is basically trying to deal with, and in what I would almost argue, Anne, which <laughs> is that this Mishnah almost could have been divided into two, right? I, so I meaning, I don't think it has to have been, but yes, I agree that intuitively it feels that way. Yeah. Right, because really, what you have mixing here is the combination of the idea of the limb leaving the boundary and also that you cannot break the bone. So you basically end up losing a little bit more of your Korvan Pesach if part of the limb goes out of the boundary because you can't break the, you know, you can't break the bone of it. Um, So that's why you have to do this whole thing of going up to the joint, peeling away the skin. So in other words, you don't lose that meat or flesh or whatever, but you're going to remove that entire bone. Um, and then it goes on to say, uh, right? But with other, you know, other korbanot, basically, that went outside of the boundary, right? You just chop it with a cleaver. You just take off the part that left the boundary. Because they're, they don't have this prohibition of not breaking the bone. Then the Mishnah is going to get to what is the actual boundary. So from the door jam inside, is judged as inside. Now, again, everyone knows if you want Masachet Ravim with me, spatial relationships is not my specialty. <laughs> so I'm not going to be able to explain this well, but most Gemaras have like a nice picture. But the idea is that that inside piece of that, that when you have the door closed, anything that's like outside of that door with the door closed, that's going to be outside. But that inside part that's occupied by the door, that's the inside of the door jam is going to be considered inside. Right. And from outside the door jam is judged as outside. So again, if the door is fully closed and you couldn't get into the house or the gate, whatever's outside, that's considered to be outside the boundary. And the windows and the thickness of the wall are judged as inside. So the Gemara now goes into this like kind of interesting tangent here. Right. And it says, This is also true with regarding prayer. Right. That in other words, the discussion being, how do you know who to join? And I actually thought, I know we don't always try to relate everything to COVID, but this is interesting because I know, for example, my Beit Knesset, which now we're in the middle of the winter and we are having our minyanim indoors. And we actually got a sack that we could have. Uh, some people are indoors, but we have these windows outside. And there's a whole question if someone's standing outside could we count them as part of the minion, right? Like I think space has taken on a very different meaning in the time of COVID with sort of social distancing. But here what it's saying is, is that when you're talking about counting people together as part of prayer, right? Everybody has to be inside of the door jam for tefillah. And then we're going to have a contradictory opinion, right? Ufliga to Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi, right? So Rav seems to be in disagreement with Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi. And again, I want to point out that Rav is one of the few Amorayim, right? He's a first-generation Amora. 
he is sort of allowed to disagree with Atana. Um, and I think that has to do with the fact that he learned with Rabbi Huda Hanasi. He's that sort of like bridging Amora. The Amor Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi, Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi said, even if you have a metal barrier between people while they're praying, it, it, it's not really, it doesn't, inter, it doesn't create a barrier between Jews and their father in heaven. So in other words, it, it's sort of saying that this thing of the door and the jams, like it's not really a factor. That's not really an issue. There's no really, there's no type thing as a barrier. So somebody who's outside of a room can always count as part of the minion. And I, you know, and I think that is the opinion that many people are using with sort of some of these uh, new constructs that they've had to come up with with space uh, during this time of social distancing and making sure that people stay um, safe. But again, just an interesting sort of tangent for the Gemara to get on. But I think one that actually, for halachic purposes, much more so than the Korban Pesach today is actually very practical for us. Um, then the other thing, the, well, and before I go on, anything you want to comment on that? No. Okay. Carry on. I'm carrying on. Okay. But then the Gemara goes on to an interesting thing where it's really going to talk about sort of the Kedusha of, uh, of Yerushalayim. And it gets onto that. It shows sort of this contradiction between the first part of the clause and the second part and what it, you know, of, of what actually is the boundaries. And so the Gemara says, Lokasha, it's not really a, a right kandishare azara. The latter clause here is dealing with the a description of basically the 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 gates of the azara itself, right? Which is considered to be inside. Kandishare Yushalim. And that first clause, right, about being the inside of the door jam, that's actually talking about the Sha'arim of Yerushalayim. So there was a little bit of a difference about what was considered inside or outside, depending on what boundary you were trying to define if it was the Azara or if it was actually Yerushalayim itself. And then it's going to give a, you know, it it, it sort of supports this by bringing the statement of Rabbi Shmuel Bar Yitzchak, right? I'm a Rabbi Shmuel Bar Yitzchak, right? Why were the gateways of Yerushalayim themselves not made Kadosh, right? Were not consecrated with the inside of the city. Because people who had leprosy, right, these Mitzoraim, and they were not allowed to be in the city, they needed to sort of take refuge underneath the gates. In the summer, because of the summer, and in the winter, um, because of the winter. So just to remember that a Mitzora, somebody who had Saras, right, is we, and we talked about this a couple of pages earlier, can't be in any of the camps, right? Can't be in the Beit HaMikdash, in the, in the Levi camp, or in, in the Israel camp. And the, this, the Azara of the Beit HaMikdash is considered to be the um, camp of the Machaneh of the Shekhinah. The whole Temple Mount, right, is considered to be the, the Levi camp. And the whole city of Yerushalayim is considered to be the Israel camp. The, so the Mitzvah is basically not allowed to enter Yerushalayim, okay? And um, this is interesting because he has to sort of somehow get into Yerushalayim to do his korban and do all those things that he needs to do um, in order to um, become Tahor again. So at least this this area, right, of underneath the gateways, they could stand there at least because this wasn't going to be considered to be actually part of Yerushalayim. And then it goes on to say, right, Ba'ama Rabbi Shmuel Bar Yitzchak, and Rabbi Shmuel Bar Yitzchak says, Right? Why was Niknor's gateway, like that specific gate, um, 
uh, not considered to be uh, uh, not to consider to be Kaddish. So in other words, that is a gate actually of the Azara itself. Okay, so that one was not considered to be Kadosh, right? And this is why the people with Saras would stand there, right? On the eighth day when they were finally were able to become Tahor, and they would basically put their thumbs into the courtyard, right? So that the Kohen could take the blood of the Korban that they did and they would dab it. Um, and so, I, again, because we don't keep these laws of Tumantara, this wasn't an issue that I ever thought of before, but it makes sense. In other words, how do you get this Tame person who's not allowed to basically be anywhere, right? How do you get them to where they need to be in order so that they can actually be um, Tahor? So once he's got undergone like day seven of that of that process, right, where he's, um, you know, brought the Korbanot that he needs to bring, it's an Ashamachatas and Ola, right, on that eighth day. Right then, he can go into Yerushalayim and go up uh, on the morning of the eighth day, but he's still not allowed to enter the Azara, right, um, until he gets this blood on his hands. So, so it, it creates sort of this thing that, in other words, he can't get into the Azara to do what he needs to do, right? But he, but he needs to get into the Azara, and so therefore, the solution they came up with is this one particular gate did not become kadosh. So it was, you know, so that they could stand there and sort of finish the purification process. So I, I like this Gemara because I think it sort of brought together um, a lot of what we had seen before with all of that discussion about the Mitzorah and the three different camps and, and who gets banished from what camp. And if you're Tamate mate, do you get banished from what camp? And it sort of brings it together in this very practical way of like how it actually affected the Kedusha of Yerushalayim itself. And, you know, and, and the purification process. To me, it just sort of brought everything together in a very nice package. I think you brought everything together in a very nice package. I think this question of how it had impact on the larger setting, the larger scheme of things, I think that's a really important, um, I would say, food for thought. I, I, I want to think about it further. Right. But it's also one of these things, like, until I read it here, it's like, a, it's a great question that I never thought of, like the actual piece of like how does the Mitzvah actually get inside to become Tameh and again it's it's pieces of Halacha that were so intricate that we just simply don't practice at all today and I, I always love seeing those things that are a reflection of a little bit more of you know certain Halachot in the Torah that we unfortunately can't keep today without a Beit HaMikdash that is true that is true well that's our DAP discussion for the day rank us review us on all major podcasts let us know what you thought about this stuff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Mm-hmm.